our opening text uh, is from uh, the Gospel according to John in chapter 1, 16 to 17, and this is what it says. If you are able to stand, will you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Let's go. From His abundance, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Thank you. The Word of God for the people of God, and thanks be to God. Let's pray before we start. God of grace, help us to draw close to you, because you've already come to us. We want to give you thanks, God, for your love. And all of our songs today, we're just pointing at how generous and loving and kind and gracious and merciful you are to your people. And so today, God, we rest in you and in who you are and what you've done. Will you open our minds and our hearts, God, so that we could be able to absorb your words today? All this we ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. By a show of hands, who here loves receiving gifts? Come on, be honest. Nice and high. Let's go. I, okay. All right. Now, okay. Now, how many of you find great joy in giving gifts? Raise your hand nice and high. Okay. Now, how many of you don't raise your hands for anything? <clears throat> All right. Here's the thing. There's two options, I think, for those of you that raise your hands for the first time. The first option is that either um, after church today, you're going to come forward and have somebody pray with you because um, you're, you know, you love getting gifts. It's kind of selfish if you just want gifts all the time. And so we'll make prayer available for you. But for the others that are maybe a little bit more crafty, um, some of you guys will probably invite some of the ones that you saw that raise their hands to your life group because Christmas is coming soon and you'd like to get presents. So no matter where you stand on that spectrum, God's grace is still for you. Now, I love receiving gifts. I love gifts. Um, throughout history, there have been uh, people who have given some pretty extravagant gifts. One example. <clears throat> in, 19, sorry, in 1653, the emperor Shah Jahan gifted his favorite wife, yeah, um, the famous Taj Mahal. Who has seen the Taj Mahal before? Um, either you've been there or you've seen a picture, right? It's beautiful. It took 21 years to build, and it cost $827 million in today's value. The only thing was she got it when she was already dead. He built that first so that, uh, that she could be buried in the Taj Mahal. And then later on when he died, he got buried there too. So I don't know if it was a real gift. But, but people do crazy things for love. There's even a song that says, I will do anything for love. Right? But I won't do that. <laughs> Good old Meatloaf. That was his name. Well, his stage name. Um, when, when I was 12 years old, uh, it was around my, my sister's birthday, and, uh, and my parents were talking about potentially getting her a, a bicycle. She didn't know about it, and I had kind of leaked it to her. Uh, and so the day came where we all hopped into the rusted uh, baby blue Ford Pinto, the family car, 
and we, the car hobbled along uh, to Burbank um, to this place called Kmart. I don't know if they're around anymore. Who's been to a Kmart before? Come on, be proud. You're like, no, I shop at Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue. No, we shopped at Kmart. And uh, everything was going well. We, we all went in, and right before going in, the bikes were all kind of laid out. You know, Huffy, Mongoose, all those really cool bikes. And she was eyeing the bikes and, uh, and was really excited, but we didn't know if she was going to get one, but we thought that she was. And so we, we go in, and, uh, and she asked me, where, how, how do I get to the bikes? And, I, you know, I'm, I'm like 12. She's like 7-ish, um, small, white-eyed. Um, and if you know Priscilla, you know that she's a very passionate person. Um, and so she, uh, <laughs> so I told her, the bikes are behind those double doors. <clears throat> all you got to do, um, all you got to do is just go through those double doors. But the thing that she didn't know was the double doors had these, like, red and white stickers and signs that says, do not open in case of fire. And the loving big brother I was. I told her to go through, and she was so excited. She walked through those double doors. And next thing you know, the alarms go off. And I mean, it was just crazy. Like, security comes in. The management comes in. I mean, it was like, what happened? What happened? It was this little seven-year-old girl that walked through these double doors to go find her bike. I had a ball. I mean, the look on my face, to see the look on her face was just incredible. That was my gift. Until my parents decided to give me an, another gift called whooping. <laughs> I couldn't sit down for a few weeks. It hurt bad. Mom, do you remember that story? Yes. Uh, yes. It's part of my resume. But in all honesty, my gift was the look on Priscilla's face. Um, she's still in therapy today. Um, and you're probably thinking, how did this guy become a pastor? Well, we're talking about grace today. The word grace appears over 130 times in the New Testament. It's the central theme to the majority of the New Testament letters written by this guy named Paul to a bunch of churches that he planted in Europe. And this word grace shows up in Paul's letters, typically in the context of gift-giving. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. And you don't have to walk through big metal double doors that say, do not enter with alarms. The Bible tells us that it is unconditional. It's unearned. And it's a gift. It's a free gift. But that's not exactly what it is. I mean, that describes what it is. But it, we're about to get into it. But it's, it also, the way that Paul seems to write about this idea called grace he tends to place it in, in, in this context of, like, scandalous, upside down to the normatives of culture. What we all believe and hold to, it's like the opposite of that. That's why it's scandalous, according to biblical, I mean, biblical, I mean, like, the world of the Bible, their cultural norms, and even today. And it's also from God. Now, now, grace is mentioned, like, outside of Paul's letters as well. And so, like, there's the grace to do something. There's a grace to go somewhere. There's a grace 
um, to be who God has called you to be for a season or whatever. But, there's, but what I'm talking about is the capital G grace, the thing that God gives to us that is extremely countercultural and scandalous. Here's just a few passages that I want us to read together. Let's look at the screen. 2 Corinthians says this, And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable grace. 2 Corinthians 9.18 says, And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. Um, Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. While I was getting ready for this message this past week or two, it, the subject started becoming kind of difficult to grasp and to, and, and to be able to kind of dive into. I mean, it, it, it was challenging because if grace is seen from the context of a gift, it started to build internal tensions within me as I was looking around what the value of gifts are and how we value things. Let me say it this way. That if we begin to get a better glimpse of grace and what it actually is, it would have the power to not only transform the way we understand God's love, but it would also radically alter the way that we value ourselves and the way that we see others. That's why I was having a difficult time is because I think our society today struggles with valuing itself, valuing others. The system of value is out of whack. I mean, like, you, you find people on Instagram that, you know, have like 30 million followers and all they're wearing is like a shoestring. And then they get endorsed by like, I don't know, some perfume company. And it's just like now they have, now people want to be like them. This, this tells about our values. It tells us about what we place worth in. You know what I'm talking about? Our world today is facing a crisis of self-worth and self-identity. Our world, and some of us included in this world, seem to struggle to evaluate ourselves and the value of others, not the way that Jesus does, but the way that the standards of the world have put in place for us. But when we do evaluate ourselves and others, it's based on all the wrong markers and all the wrong criteria. And while we live in a visual world, the presence of social media, uh, it's not the cause, but it hasn't helped our understanding of human value and self-worth. Would you agree? In an increasingly hostile world and judgmental society, we literally have placed our personal lives out there for the world to judge and comment on, to like, to follow, to not like, or to stop following. Caught in the web of projecting a successful self-image while watching others who seem to have a much happier life has led to greater levels of sadness, loneliness, depression, hopelessness, and languishing. It's like this. We, we compare 
especially when we're in kind of a funky situation. Let's say your marriage is on the rocks. Let's say your relationships aren't working out. Let's say you lost your job. Let's say your abilities, you can't do what you used to do. You're in some kind of an existential life crisis. Things aren't working out. Your dreams aren't fulfilled. You have emotional lacks, whatever. The whole, I mean, the list is, is long. And then you look on social media, and then you see people, like, hugging each other, smiling, and then doing, you know, doing great things. And you're like, wow, why don't I have that? And what happens is we end up judging our backstage. We compare our backstage with other people's front stage. And all that does is make it way more difficult to affirm who God says we are. It only reaffirms the false narratives and stories that we have bought into. Our lives, our relationships, the lack thereof, our marriages, our singleness, our past, present, and future journey of little worth and low probability of happiness or success. That's why they say that comparison is a thief of joy. This combination of, of high self um, and social expectations mixed with a fragile view of oneself has left a recipe for social disaster and a personal lack of self-worth. Am I talking to anyone this morning? You're like, I thought we were talking about grace. We are. Because grace, if it's a gift, there's a giver and there's a receiver. And gifts have value, and the receiver has value. And we're going to talk about that right now. This is why God's grace is liberatingly scandalous. But to grasp why God's gift of grace, the capital G, is so profoundly powerful, we need to understand how gifts worked in the ancient world. How gifts operated, like the psychology of gifts, in the world of the Bible. Can we take a quick moment to jump into some context real quick? Yeah? All right. So let's do this. When it came to gift exchanges, there were three things involved, like I mentioned. The gift, the giver, and the receiver. When gifts were given in the ancient world, they were given with three ideas. Okay? With three thoughts, three values. The gift was given, first, in proportion to the value or social worth of the receiver. Second, Gifts were given with intentions of fostering deeper relationships with the receiver. Right? Third, again, with no preconditions but a desired outcome. Third, gifts were given with hopes of personal gain or benefit from the receiver. So, like, if you're going into the courts of a king, you're not going to give him cheap sandals. Because the level of worth of a sandal doesn't match the level of worth of a king, right? You would elevate your gift to match the social status and value of the receiver. That's how it worked. And when you gave a gift, like many kings would offer their sons or daughters to another kingdom so that they could have political relationships, they wanted something, so they would give, they would give them gold and say that we are now allies. It happens today too, right? So there was this hope of receiving something. 
These were the gift values of the time of the Bible. Does it make sense so far? So what is grace in light of this context? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, here's what grace is, if it's summarized. Grace is the free and generous gift of God given without any regard for the value or worth of the receiver. It violates the first principle. It's a gift for all sinners, and it's given without any preconditions or consideration of the categories of worth and value that society places on the receiver. Its giving isn't determined on our titles, our social status, our social value, or our ability to produce. Does that make sense? Do you see why grace is so scandalous, in, at least in the world of the Bible? Because it didn't operate according to the social norms of gift giving. Because it shattered and it undid, the grace of God shattered and undid the value system of that world. And it's supposed to deconstruct our social standards of value and worth today. This radical gift of grace is supposed to reshape our worth and our measurement of worth, like whatever you measure worth by, and the source of our identity, because it's all tied together. This is freedom and good news for anyone who places their value and identity on what God, this, I mean, this, this is liberating, but like on all the things that God doesn't say, put your value in. This is supposed to free us. Now, as I was driving up here this morning, I was just thinking, I was like, wow, this is good stuff. But it is so hard to adopt. How many of us have lost our jobs at one point in time and you just felt like your value was zero? I have. When you love being loved, but when you're rejected, how does that feel? When things aren't going well in your life and you, and you look on social media or you see others and like, you know, like just like everything is going well for them, it's like, why is it just, is this me, God? Like, am I just walking under a cloud? Like, why is it me? You look at people that are talented or like those that aren't talented and they make a ton of money and you're like, how does that happen? Like, it's because we have a particular system of measurement that we value things. How do we value an infant baby? He can't produce, he can't give, doesn't have money, doesn't have prestige. Or how do you value somebody with um, severe mental challenges? Like, it's difficult for them to actually produce something in society. How are they valued? See, if it was based off of the, the social norms, their value is nothing. So maybe the system of value needs to be reevaluated, And that's what grace does. So what does the gift of grace do in our lives? Here are six radical and scandalous, not six, um, four radical and scandalous works of God's grace. Uh, 
and it's gonna be a little different, because I wanna get into, like, not just what grace is, but, but why grace is the liberating news for you and I today, and that no matter where we stand and how we value things, grace comes in and says, wait a minute, it is not that way. God says it is this way. And if we believe God and we, if we trust in him and, and what he says is true and good and right, then we now have to adjust our measurements to God's measurements. We now have to adjust the way that we see ourselves to the way that God sees us. We now have to redefine the way that God values others. We now have to see others in that same way. And it's going to put us at odds with the way that the world has groomed us to value things. Like I remember um, reading about the mass suicides um, here in Pasadena, you know, the bridge uh, during the, uh, the Great Depression. Like what is it about your stock, the stock market and what you've lost that you know, the value goes down and because of that, your value goes down too. Like it's tethered. Their identities were tethered to their bank accounts and their assets. And when that plummeted, they plummeted off the bridge. Or reading about even in our own town, the kids that have taken their life at CV High School. The pressures of performance and trying to be something that parents are forcing them to be and the system is saying this is what you need to look like and be like and do so that you are valued and they just don't meet the standard and so they find a way out. It's heartbreaking. But the grace of God, four things. It rescues. It redefines. It restructures, and it recreates. Let's say it again together. The grace of God, God's gift of grace, it rescues, it redefines, it restructures, and it recreates. First one, God's grace, the grace of God, it rescues us. Why? To show God's great love and kindness. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in him, with him, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages we might he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Wow. It rescues us. If you're here this morning and you've been doubting that God loves you or that he can actually love you or that maybe God doesn't love you, it's because some of us have subscribed to a story and a narrative that places our failures and our shortcomings as the lead character in the story, not the cross of Jesus Christ. As we read in our opening passage today, John 1:17, for the law was given through Moses. Law was what? Given. But grace wasn't given. 
It came through Jesus Christ. Grace comes to you and I at our worst, but also at our best. It's not that grace, we were like lost, which we were. We were worthless, which, you know, our value was, I mean, it depends on who values you. But it's also our best. The things that we take pride in. The things that we put our values, like based on. Grace shatters all that. The gift of grace isn't a status that you work for, for fear of expiring. It isn't something you earn by being better or by doing more or by sanitizing your behaviors. That's, that, that's a big one. Like, if I, if I don't do the wrong things, then maybe God will love me more. It's this, this ladder that we're trying to climb. And as the, the leader of the, the Reformation, Martin Luther, was like, he was trying to hammer this point, is, look, you cannot climb this ladder. Jesus has already come down from the ladder to you so that you don't have to climb up to him because you can't do it anyway. That's what grace has done. The gift of grace, by the way, even though there's no conditions to it or preconditions, it isn't blind to our condition. But it comes to us in spite of our condition. Let me say it again. That the gift of grace isn't blind to your condition and mine, but it comes to us in spite of our condition. You can't do anything to climb the ladder, but thank God that because of grace... Grace came down to us to rescue us and to show us what God is like. What did grace do? It rescued us to show what? God's great love and kindness. Second thought. Grace redefines our value. Grace redefines our value. Um, Ephesians 1, uh, 5 until 6 says, God decided in, in advance to adopt us as children into his own family by bringing us to himself. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him what? Great pleasure. So we praise and honor God for the glorious grace he has freely given us through the Son whom he loves. Did you catch that? That in this passage, Paul is putting Christ here, and then he's putting us in the same family with Christ, being heirs to God. And he's saying that the value that, that God gives his son, he speaks over you. And that belovedness and that identity that he gives his son, we share in that same identity. So why is it that we're trying to put other identities over ourselves? Grace comes to us and made us family with God. And it showers us with the same love that God the Father has for God the Son when we were once outsiders far from God and even enemies of God. See, it shatters the gift-giving factors of the ancient world. You don't give a gift to an enemy. You give it to a friend or because you want them to be your friend. Um, how many of you have seen the picture of the Mona Lisa? I think it's up here. Hi. How much is it worth? What would you say? If you raise your hands, you're going to buy it, okay? So don't, don't raise your hands. 
honestly, practically, it's like worth like $100. An old canvas, crusty paint. <laughs> I mean, it's not worth that much. But it was insured for $1 billion, and its estimated worth is $850 million. Its created value is subjective, and it's up to the artist. But hear me out. This is why grace is scandalous. Remember when I said that in the ancient world, when a gift was given, it was given in proportion to the value or social worth of the receiver? This becomes valuable because somebody is willing to pay $850 million. And when they do, it now ascribes its new worth. Yes, we have value because we are made in God's image, but Paul is not talking about the image of God. In fact, I mean, we can make a connection later on if you want to be theological, but Paul isn't getting into the language of image of God here. He's getting into the image of the purchase of God. It's not the image of God, but the purchase of God in, this, in Paul's letters that he's trying to tell us that you were enemies of God, but God bought you with a price. What was the price? It was his life. Wow. And by doing that, by giving us the gift of grace, now we have intrinsic value that we didn't before. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to hammer it in to his audience to know how radical and upside down God's grace is. Why? Because once you were dead in your, what, dead because of your disobedience and your many sins in which you used to live in when you followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. All of us have lived among them at one point in time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of judgment. But, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. Can I get an amen this morning? Amen. Paul's telling us that this gift of grace in Christ isn't given to God's friends, but to God's enemies. Not to the righteous, but to the unrighteous. Not to the morally upright, but to the morally bankrupt. That's why it's scandalous. There's a, there's a crazy disproportion of this gift. That's why it's scandalous. It's because this gift that's worth infinite doesn't match the worth that we had. That's why he's saying, look, God is gifting you with grace, and because of it, you now are God's child. Don't you know your value? He's stressing to communicate this extreme disproportion and incongruity between the gift of grace and the human race. Our value was nowhere near the gift that God has given us in Christ. But we now have this value. This is great news. The grace of God saves us from the tyranny of false identities. It, it rescues us from, from the norms and the patterns and the value systems of this world. 
It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. Because the grace of God, because of the grace of God, we no longer need to work for worth, but we work out of our worth. Let me say it again. Because of grace, you no longer need to work for worth. Instead, you work out of your worth. And that's good news. So it rescues what? It redefines. And third, it restructures the way that we value. Once we, like once we like realize that how disproportionate God's gift is in com like comparison to our worth, like God's grace begins to kind of restructure and reevaluate our value systems, the way that we value people, the way that we, like, like how we define other people's values. And the way that we resist the social values, by the way. Because in Christ, our social currencies and our categories of worth are no longer useful. Like Paul's like, the things that you think are useful, the things that the world says that, you know, if you have, if you do, and, and this is what you got, that this makes you valuable, it's like, not to God. It doesn't work that way with God. God has a whole different ruler. His measurement system, totally different. If that was the measuring system, then, he, then you'd be toast. But that is not how God sees you and I. And that is great news. There was a prayer that, Jews, uh, that Jewish men prayed all the time in this book called the Talmud. Um, it's, it's like ancient Jewish writings. This will give you kind of an understanding of how the world saw people. Let's read it together, actually, because it's so in interesting. <laughs> Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Seriously? You wake up in the morning, ah, oh, what a great day. Let's go pray. Lord, thank you. I mean, God of the universe, ruler, Lord, thank you that I am not those other races. Thank you that I'm not a woman. Thank you that I'm not a slave. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Endowed with what? Right? Yeah, I mean, it's great. And I believe it. But the problem was that value and that worth wasn't given to everyone. This is the system of the world. Galatians 3, 26 to 29 says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ. Now, by the way, Paul is writing this, this exact, like, w these words in light of what we just read. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ, and all of you have been united with Christ in baptism, have put on Christ, like putting on your clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and now that you belong to Christ, you are true 
children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. This is, you know, he's taking a bat, and he's going swinging at this, this Jewish prayer. And he says, these social markers and these standards do not apply to God. Now, here's the thing. What, what the Bible is not saying is that your race doesn't matter, that your ethnicity doesn't matter, that where you come from doesn't matter, that your situation, you're bound and you're a slave or you're free. He's not saying that these things don't matter to God, but he's saying that the value that these things give to society, that's not how God values you. It's not that those things don't matter. They're important. And, and they need to be addressed. But it's not what gives you value. Your name is not alcoholic. Your name is not addict. Your name is not unfit, divorced, ugly, fat, the wrong race, too dark, too light, undocumented immigrant, uneducated, single, lonely, unlovable, widowed, poor, broke, jobless, food stamps, old and useless, ADD, OCD, GED, depressed, dropout, blue collar. That is not your identity. You think I'm done? I'm not done. Your name is not white collar, educated, successful, privileged, the right race, business person, soccer mom, CEO, verified on Twitter, Republican, Democrat, straight, gay, married with children, single parent, pastor, plumber, professor, pilot, president. That is not your identity. The unmerited grace of God has deconstructed the value systems of the world so that we have no reason to boast in these things anymore, but by the grace of God given to us through Christ Jesus. And that, church, is great news. That should liberate us from the tyranny of false identities and lesser values. That is supposed to be the thing that, that gives us value and causes us to love others and to honor others no matter where they come from, what they believe, what they do, what they have done, no matter what the resume is, that we love others the way that Christ, through His grace, has loved us. Does that make sense to anyone this morning? Come on. This is what Paul says. We rely on what Christ has done for us, but we put no confidence in human efforts. <laughs> if we did, I can boast. He says, look, me, Paul, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I was circumcised on the eighth day. A member of the tribe of Benjamin. A real Hebrew if there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience for the Jewish law. I was zealous and I harshly persecuted Christians in the church. And for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless, garbage, because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have been discarded. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage 
so that I can gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer, no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteousness through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Him depends on faith. Grace has come to us. Grace has been given to us. But the way that we receive grace is by faith. It's not works. And it says, even that faith is given by God. So we have nothing to have pride in or to boast in. The kind of faith that he's talking about starts with just simple trust. But a mature faith that Paul is talking about is, is this. Faith that isn't based on human achievement, but a declaration of our moral and spiritual bankruptcy. It's a radical recognition that the only capital in God's economy is the gift of grace, which comes to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the fourth point is it recreates us. The Bible has another word for this. It's called new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 18 says that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new creation. The old life is gone. A new life has begun, and all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ Jesus. The gift of grace comes to us without any preconditions, but it's given to us for a purpose, to bring us back to God. I don't know what you walked in here today with. Like, I, I don't know how you value yourself. And I have to be honest. There are times when the way that we value ourselves, it bleeds into other areas of our lives. Our family sees it. Our friends sees it. Our children can sense it. The things that we place great value in, it shows up, it bleeds out of us. Who are you today? Child of God. I want to read a couple of passages. Let's go to the last page, or the last uh, slide. With God's grace comes all of these identities. There's a whole lot more. Now, I don't know, honestly, I don't know what you struggle with. I know what I struggle with. I know what I go to God with on my knees and say, God, I need you. God, I can't do it without you. God, I have put other identities over myself, and I am coming up short. I'm going to read these, and then we're going to go through them one more time. And if it speaks to you this morning, if this is what you need to claim as God's gift of grace, then I just want you to stand. And if it's something that you've already identified with, I want you to stand. Don't stand just yet. So the first one, greatly loved. Child of God. Free. Accepted. Chosen. God's masterpiece. Protected, saved, more than a conqueror. I'm going to read it again. If it's what you want to claim or what you have claimed, I want you to stand up. Greatly loved. Greatly loved, Romans 5.8. 
child of God. John 1, 12. Free. John 18, 36. Accepted. Romans 15, 7. Chosen. 1 Peter 2, 9. Masterpiece. Ephesians 2, 10. Protected. John 17, 15. I see you. Saved. Hebrews 7, 25. More than a conqueror. Romans 8, 38. This is your identity. This is your inheritance. God calls you these things. Your value by the gift of grace gives you these things. This is, this is who you are in God's eyes. But it just doesn't stop there. God wants you to be reconcilers to those that aren't in here yet. God wants you to take this identity and to say, hey, that is not who you are. That is not what you are. Let me tell you who God says you are. Because the grace that has opened your eyes and has opened my eyes wants to open the eyes of those who are living under false identities and lesser values. Who knows the things that God will do if you just open your mouth and give value and worth to others because God has that worth for them. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks this morning for who you have called us to be. We give you thanks for the gift of grace that we could not work our, our way towards, but you in your great love and richness of mercy, God, that you came down the ladder and you purchased us. You gave your life for us, giving us value to die for, God. And so, God... Help us to live in this identity. It is one of the most difficult things to do in the life of a Christian. But help us to live in these identities, God, that come from your grace. Help us to be reminded when the, when the enemy says that we are not valuable, that we are not worth anything, that our value is found in other things, God. Will you speak, will the Holy Spirit speak to us, God, in a way that would wake us up and shake us up and remind us over and over again how deeply we are loved and valued, that we are God's children, that we are loved, that we are free, that we are accepted, that we are chosen, that we are His craftsmanship and His masterpiece, that we are protected, that we are saved, and we are more than conquerors because of the free grace of God, that we give you thanks as a church today. And everyone says together, in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, church, and God bless you. Yeah.